Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Today, we are talking about anxiety and how to find a tranquil mind. My guest today is Dr. Katie. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to learn from you and talk about this topic. Uh, But before we like dive all deep into the topic, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us about you and kind of what maybe perhaps got you in this realm of focus. For sure. Um, So my name's uh, Dr. Katie Thompson Aiken. I am a naturopathic doctor in Guelph, Ontario. And the focus of my practice is mental health, specifically helping professionals overcome anxiety. I have been walking with anxiety for a long time. When I was a very young child in in grade one, I had really horrible stomach aches. Um, And, you know, my doctor didn't know what it was. My teacher didn't know what it was. I was missing school from pain. And I actually, you know, had to go to the hospital and get a barium swallow to make sure there wasn't anything like really serious happening with my digestive system. And what I learned much later is that, all of that pain that was very real was coming from the fact that my teacher would scream at us. And that made me very uncomfortable, very anxious. I was always trying to behave in a way that would keep my classroom a calm environment rather than a yelling environment, which of course is not something that a six-year-old child has control of. Um, But that's really where my anxiety first showed itself, even though I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. And it has walked with me in waves throughout my life as I learned to learned to manage and move through. Um, As I was studying naturopathic medicine, that was a time where my anxiety was quite high. Uh, It's a very difficult uh, program. It took a lot of my time. And again, stomach pains came back and I was doing all the naturopath things to make it feel better. You know, I called myself, I was on the chicken and chicken and vegetables diet, trying to calm my digestive system until I realized that, nope, this was in my mind um, and was manifesting in my body. And once I was able to approach it from a different way, I started bringing in skills in naturopathic medicine designed to help anxiety, learning things in my lifestyle, learning yoga, meditation, all kinds of tools. And when I moved into clinical practice, I really felt an affinity for helping others that were moving through that similar phase of anxiety, particularly high performers who were looking to be their best and putting a lot of pressure on themselves because of that and helping them see how 
calm is with you. You just need to reconnect with it and unlock it. And so since I've been in practice, that's, that's what I've been sharing. Amazing. Yeah. And probably we need it more than ever now, just across the board, right? Like just with everything going on in the world, it's like a high, it's a high stress time. It is, um, you know, many people over the past 18 months have had their mental health impacted uh, by the current global events and it's hard. It's been, it's been hard for adults. It's hard for kids and it's really hard for teenagers stuck in the middle there. And I think it's important that we learn as best we can what's in our control, what we can do and what resources there are for when anxiety becomes something that's beyond something we can handle on our own because that's, it's really common for that to happen. Yeah. So let's maybe start with like contextualizing like anxiety, like what is it? Because, you know, there's so many different presentations, so many different definitions, you know, there's like a clinical way to look at it. Then there's like a nervous system way to look at it. There's probably a spiritual way to look at it, you know? So just to maybe help us, you know, in this discussion, like what would be your kind of working definition or, or conceptual framework you're coming from? For sure. So I always like to start with saying anxiety is a universal human emotion. It is a feeling that we all experience and we experience it when our body perceives there to be risk or danger. It's part of our internal alarm system and it's designed to keep us safe. And so experiencing some anxiety in life is normal and healthy. When it becomes a problem is when anxiety starts affecting our day-to-day lives. So when we are unable to do the things that we need to do or want to do on a daily basis because we're feeling anxious. And so when that is the case, that is when we start looking at, is this more of an anxiety disorder? And, you know, we talked about different ways, you know, anxiety can show up in the body. I shared my story about how anxiety is primarily a digestive concern for me, but I work with people who have anxiety symptoms showing up all over their body in terms of headaches, uh, tingling and neurologic symptoms um, and digestive respiratory problems, and even things like affecting um, bladder and bowel function. So it really does affect a lot of different systems in the body. We often think of anxiety as a mental health concern. We focus on those like overthinking and worrying aspects of it. But in my opinion, it affects physical, mental, and spiritual health in terms of our sense of self, who's our identity, how we're moving through the world, all of those things can become wrapped up in either a place of wellness that leaves us insulated against anxiety or more vulnerable to anxiety. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to alert individuals that it's, it you know, it's not like the mind is not 
separate from the body, right? Like, and, you know, when we talk about, you know, the nervous system and you're right, like it is a normal response to a threat or perceived threat to have our system kind of activate, right? There's, that's the whole, we need to mobilize against a potential threat. And because of that, there's a physiological cascade that like, if I need to run away from a tiger, I probably don't need to have energy put forth toward digestion right now. So it's normal, right? And our system can handle those like small chunks, but then it's like when it's there all the time, it's easy to see that there might be changes in the body that show up. And I see it all the time because I pelvic health. So bladder and bowel and we'll go through things and, you know, I screen for, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, because if I don't screen for it, then I don't have the whole picture. Yeah, it's absolutely right. You know, your body is ready to run from a bear, but our modern life stressors are not bears. They're emails, they're phone calls. And so our physiology is still gearing up to run. And over time, that has negative health consequences. If your body is, for example, flooding your, um, flooding your cells with glucose, so that you have the energy for your muscles to run from this bear that's not there. Like it's not, it's not benign. Um, and while some of that is normal and we absolutely need it, what happens in an anxiety disorder is that something's gone askew where we're either our perception of danger has been exaggerated. So we're afraid of things that we don't need to be afraid of or our response um, is just like on high alert all the time. So even though in our head, we know like, um, this isn't a big deal. Like I understand that I don't need to be afraid right now, but my body doesn't, isn't resonating with that. My body is telling me this is really scary. Um, And so sorting out how to calm the body and calm the mind so that they are both able to experience that peace and tranquility. Absolutely. And I was just, you know, I'm, so I'm a big polyvagal and I'm a somatic experiencing um, practitioner, like in training. So this is all like totally in my realm of being. And um, I was going to say something about that, but my, my train of thought decided that it's going to go, um, off center. So maybe it'll come back to me. Um, I hope it comes back. I know it's like, it's the most annoying thing when it, when the train, um, what were we talking about? (laughs) Sometimes I need a repeat and then it'll like spring my mind. Um, modern day stressors. Yeah. I wanted to say that we are not taught how to we're not taught how to calm because we keep the mind and the body sort of separate. Oh, okay. I remember what I was going to say. What I was going to say is that when we're in that activated state, our rational, it's like 
the part that is in charge of that doesn't even know our rational brain exists. Right? It's like, I hear you, but I don't know where you're coming from and if you even like exist. So I'm just going to let you talk over there and I'm going to like do the thing I need to do to survive in this moment. Right? And so that's the disconnect between the two can also be really frustrating. If you have the awareness that like, I know I shouldn't be feeling this way yet. I cannot seem to do something about it. For sure. Yeah. When those, when those uh, more base structures take control, when the amygdala gets activated and we're running from a place of fear and emotionality, we're respond, we're reacting rather than choosing our response. And a lot of the lifestyle pieces that I work with my patients on are around how can we make sure that when you wake up in the morning and as you move through your day, your amygdala is as happy as possible so that it's not repeating, you know, all the pieces from yesterday. This is why good night's sleep is so great for emotional well-being is that it resets it. So like properly turning off your computer and then having it reboot in the morning, you can do that with your brain with sleep. And when anxiety you know, gets in the way of having a good night's sleep, there's a negative spiral there because then you're more emotional the next day. And so this is why like returning to how can I get those few moments of calm? How can I choicefully re-engage with my nervous system, with my center, and build that over time so that your body and mind remember what that's like. So you can move with more ease through those disruptions. Everybody gets activated. You move through the world, you're going to get emotional. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we want or what I want for myself and I want for my patients and I want for everyone that's listening to this podcast is to be able to see it happening and then recenter with as much ease as the situation allows for. Absolutely agree. So anxiety, right? The purpose of anxiety is from an evolutionary perspective to basically mobilize us in case of a threat or in the event of an actual threat so that we can survive. So like its function is actually a positive function in the sense of like, it's meant to keep us safe and in survival. How So like understanding that there's this like normal presentation, this normal function, you know, how, how might, how does it go awry? Like, how does it all of a sudden go from like being purposeful to like not being able to turn off? Yeah. I love that question. I think the answers are as nuanced as individuals that have anxiety. So I'm going to talk about it in three general categories, but if you feel like this doesn't account for your experience of anxiety, please know that it's unique. We can have disease manifest in, in many ways. And I don't think we fully know a hundred percent how this happens. So for some folks, um, anxiety comes up through um, trauma or perceived lack of safety in the world. Um, And this elevates their alarm system to the point where it is always on guard. And you can see how that is a very normal response. 
that has really challenging consequences. Um, and so in that sense, I see that as being really cortisol driven, really stress response. Um, and I call that defensive anxiety. It's like your back's against the wall. So this is the response to keep you safe. Another category that I see that I feel is a little bit more emotionally driven is what I call decision anxiety. And I see this most commonly in changes in life. So students who are living on their own for the first time, postpartum moms who go from like a really structured work environment to at home, taking the whims of a newborn and also folks when they retire. I will say we had a ton of decision anxiety right when the pandemic started and everyone's lifestyle shifted immediately. So there's a bit of an aimlessness. There's a bit of a, I've used up my capacity for good decisions in my day and I don't really know what to do anymore. And there's also some physiology that comes in that can create some anxiety when we lose our usual sleeping, eating, and movement habits. And so when we're not on our rhythms, our that's like our signals get crossed. If you're not eating regularly, your body doesn't know when it's going to get food. It's sending you information like, hey, I need some food. And you're just like, I don't even know what my body needs right now. Um, I can't handle decisions. And so that's another way that I see anxiety go from a normal response to um, more running haywire. And then the third category I see is fatigue, anxiety. And I use this category to describe what in traditional Chinese medicine is a heart blood deficiency, where the, which comes from a lack of nourishment and this causing there just not to be enough substance for the mind to fully settle. So I can see this in folks with uh, chronic poor nutrition. So if you're just not able to feed yourself well over a long period of time, you can just develop anxiety, consider things like anxiety symptoms coming from anemia or from magnesium deficiency. Those sort of fall into this fatigue style of anxiety. The other population that I see it is not sometimes have excellent nutrition, but the body burden of their nutrition has been really high. So see this in chronic disease where anxiety comes after a period of being unwell and including in that would be um, post chemotherapy um, and patients who have been through like just really intensive medical care and their body is in recovery mode and there's anxiety because there just isn't the nutritional and not enough rest in their life to fully allow the recovery of the nervous system. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that, that I find that helpful as well to like, understand even moments in my life where I'm like feeling more anxious. And I, you know, sometimes I'm like, why am I feeling so anxious about, right. And sometimes, and so that's kind of helpful to kind of contextualize as like, I've been making a lot of decisions lately, or am I sitting in, in a lot of indecision and like, what if playing and all of that? So I think that's like very, very helpful. I do want to talk about also, cause I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate. Yes. Okay. So he'll often talk about like chronic stress for example, in like marginalized populations, like sometimes our like culture and 
you know, our environment uh, really can impact also our experience of anxiety or anxiety can show up as a result of our um, experiences. And maybe this falls under the trauma category, uh, but I wanted to maybe just talk about like that aspect as well. For sure. Thanks for bringing that up. I think it's really important that we acknowledge that when we start looking at something like uh, formal criteria for anxiety, we're saying, okay, we, we treat everybody the same. We say like, okay, if your anxiety is disproportionate to your experience, now it's an anxiety disorder. And what that doesn't always take into account is that we do not all walk through the world with the same experience. My level of privilege is not the same as someone else who may be dealing with a world that has microaggressions to them on a daily basis where they are not safe. I think of honestly, how unsafe this world is for trans women. How would they not feel anxiety moving through their life with the stats on violence towards those women? And that's just one population. But when we look at this world, not everyone gets to feel safe. And so there are more like higher levels of anxiety in marginalized populations. And I think that is that lack of safety. And so when we're looking at treating anxiety, you know, as a practitioner, I work on an individual level. I work with people one-on-one, but as we look at the anxiety rates and how much the prevalence of anxiety is increasing in this world, I think it's irresponsible to not look at the way we treat each other and the safety we create in our communities for people to show up as their authentic self, to live a life where they are not at risk of violence, just based on who they are, who they love, their culture, their religion. None of those things should be affecting someone's safety, but we live in a world where all of those things affect how safe someone feels in the world. And like all the anxiolytics in the world are not going to make up for if someone can't walk home from work at night and feel safe in their neighborhood. And so there is a huge level to this that is beyond what we can do as practitioners or as individuals and really requires community policy and caring about each other so that we can have a safer world for people who are more vulnerable. Yeah. Like conscious community. Like we need to sort of become more connected to ourselves, to others, to nature, to all of it, because like our disconnect. And and I think part of it is from that sort of like mind, body, spirit disconnect that we perhaps in simpler times were way more in tune with that. And therefore we understood we need to rely on each other. We rely on nature. We rely on the environment to provide and um, to bring us abundance and, and safety in community. And, you know, 
like technology and our industrial revolution, like, you know, I'm not saying those things are inherently bad, but I feel like we've just become significantly more disconnected. And as such, we're not in tune even with our own bodies, our emotional intelligence, our body intelligence, such that if we we felt more connected to ourselves, we would likely start to feel connected, more connected to life. And if we're more connected to life, we would just accept life as it is as a powerful, as a beautiful part of the whole picture that we all want to like not destroy the painting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it's complicated how we ended up in a place that is so disconnected. And I always talk about connection inside my work in the tranquil minds program. It's actually the fifth pillar of performance because it, it is so impactful. Um, and right now in my momentum club, we're doing a book club all about connection. It's a book by Casper Turkile called the power of ritual. And he is talking about connecting on four levels, connecting to ourselves, connecting to our community, connecting to the natural world and connecting to transcendence. And I think that last piece there, that transcendence, that's when we remember that we are not alone and that we are connected to all humans, all things, this planet. And there is a state of love, care, and compassion that comes from remembering that and experiencing that, that I think is very powerful in healing anxiety on hopefully, hopefully more than just the one person level. Indeed. So you mentioned one of five pillars being connection and you sort of mentioned your tranquil mind program. So I'd love to hear about kind of like the five pillars you sort of feel are important aspects to living with anxiety, managing it, you know, transcending it hopefully, perhaps, you know? Um, so what are, what are kinds of, what are the kinds of things that you think about when you work with clients? For sure. So in the Tranquil Minds course, we go through what I think are the best things that we have some evidence to support nervous system regulation, reduction of anxiety. And these are things that individuals have some control over. They are things where you can step into the driver's seat of your own life and start saying, no, we're going to adjust course as to how I'm making decisions right now and move into a different, a different way of being. And they are nutrition, movement, meditation, sleep, and connection. And so when I work with patients one-on-one, we go through an assessment for each of those pillars to see how strong they are. Everyone has pillars that come really easy to them and they have really good habits around and everyone has pillars that could use more support because they don't come as naturally. They weren't raised in a family where that was, you know, prioritized. They didn't learn those habits. And so this is just it's just a assessment where we see, okay, where can we build from where, where's the starting line? And then we go through and for each of those pillars, just 
step-by-step, bridge-by-bridge, change them slowly over time until my patients have a robust way of moving through the world. I think of it as a ladder. You know, sometimes when you're falling down, um, you need some help getting back up. But once you're on your way up, you need that ladder to help you keep going. And so the Tranquil Minds is, is a ladder. And we work through each of those pillars to like build the type of habits that help your nervous system stay calm. So, you know, back when we were first talking about anxiety and we talked about that bear or that email that really gets your amygdala going when your nervous system is in like a well-nourished, well-rested, uh, calm place, when it catches that disruption, you're going to be faster moving through that anxiety. And that's what we want. We want the anxiety to cause an alarm to readjust. And then for you to go back to feeling peaceful, not stewing for days or weeks or months or years on end over what was an incident. Indeed. I'm nodding my head. I was like, yes, do not stew for longer than you need to. And and that's, I think, resilience, like learning to be resilient in your mind, body, and spirit. It is. It's, it's funny. I don't use the word resilience a lot because when I built the tranquil mind program six years ago, no one was really talking about resilience, but now everyone's talking about resilience and it's those same pieces. It's like, how can you fortify yourself so that you can move through this with more ease? Indeed. So, so nutrition. So what's like, why, why do we care about that piece? Yeah. I think we get caught up in thinking about anxiety and neurotransmitters. Like we forget that our brain and our nervous system and all the lovely neurotransmitters that we can make to make us ourselves feel good are all made of our food. They're a hundred percent made of what you've eaten. And so rather than jump to very complicated ways of looking at eating, um, I take a very simple approach in terms of making sure that when we're dealing with someone who's experiencing anxiety, that their basic nutritional needs are met. A lot of folks with anxiety have a stress response where they um, have trouble eating. They get confused as to what's anxiety hurting their stomach versus what's hunger bothering their stomach. You know, it's just like, Oh, it's a tummy ache. I'm going to run away from this. And so a lot of times they have like poor eating habits or, um, you know, for one reason or another, women are reducing their caloric intake. Um, and maybe they're just like not getting enough food to have like good emotional health. I think that often gets left out of conversations around diet and weight loss goals. You know, it's like, okay. Um, you know, if you eat, everyone knows that they're like kind of cranky if they don't get enough to eat. They don't think about like, oh, over like years of time, if I'm not nourishing myself properly over months, like it's not just crankiness, like you can develop anxiety. And so, um, first we look at like nutritional sufficiency. So are we eating often enough? Then I move into, um, quality of food. So I like to keep it really simple. We talk about protein and produce because those are the pieces that are going to flood your body with the nutrients to have great brain health. And so we just start picking it up, you know, okay. Breakfast doesn't have protein or produce in it. All right. Let's add one of those. Let's add another one of those. And then it's really not about, um, don't eat this, or this is going to make you more anxious, 
really like focusing on what can you add in? How can you change how you're already eating in small ways that give you more grounding during the day? This is part of that like upward spiral ladder where if you were just having a coffee for breakfast and now you have a coffee and literally anything else, a bagel, I don't care. Now you've got some actual calories in your morning. You're going to have more energy that day. Then maybe after a week of that, you're like, okay, now I'm going to get some smoked salmon or some cream cheese on my bagel. It's not my favorite, but now I've got some protein in there. Okay. Now that I'm feeling better, I have the energy. I can make a shake or I can grab an apple. So suddenly you've gone from, and it feels sudden, but it's like, you know, a month later, you've gone from no food at breakfast to starting your day with some protein, some vitamins and your nervous system loves that. It functions so much better when we've done that for it. And so that is, you know, that is my approach. Eventually, do we start looking at like maybe less caffeine, maybe less wine, maybe less sugar? Sure. But I find that starting with what do we need to add in is a lot more effective and you get the results faster. And then you have the capacity to look at something like wine consumption or anything else that you're feeling is like maybe not helping your anxiety and say, huh, maybe I do want to look at that, modify that, change that. So I think it's an important piece, but it comes later. Okay. What about sleep? So, I mean, you obviously alluded to that kind of like recharge, the computer. Yeah, Uh, definitely resetting your emotional brain through minimum six hours of uninterrupted sleep is my goal for all of my patients with anxiety. Sometimes this can't happen, right? Like you got, um, he's like postpartum anxiety as an example, you know, you're getting up every two hours to feed another human. That's, you're not going to get that chunk. And so we have to look at what supports can you have in to get as long a period of sleep as possible? How can we move as much rest in? But in terms of just managing sleep in general, we talk about cortisol and managing a day night cycle. You know, we talk about melatonin. Can we create some darkness before bed? Can we dim the lights? Can we put cell phones away? Maybe your cell phone needs a bedtime so that you're not looking at it after a certain time. Um, and then we talk about quieting the mind. I was just editing uh, my audio book on, and I was doing the chapter on quieting the mind before we hopped on this call. And it's, it's a few phases, like not everything works for the same person, but if you, if you are overthinking your day tomorrow, you might need steps in your day before you hit bed so that you can go to bed and be like, no, I already took care of tomorrow. I don't need to worry about it. Um, if you're replaying, you know, unresolved things, emotional things from your day, you might need a habit where you let some of that go, whether that's through journaling, meditation, telling your partner the annoying thing that happened that day so that you can fall asleep without thinking about it. There's lots of different ways to do it, but cultivating some peaceful mind, it, it's a practice, but it's one that gets a lot better sleep. speaking about quieting the mind, we might as well talk about the meditation piece or the mindfulness piece as the third pillar. 
Yeah. So I often teach this one before we even get to sleep because it is such a useful tool for quieting the mind when we're looking at building good sleep habits. I I think of meditation as, and mindfulness as non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And when I'm talking with my patients, a lot of times um, there's a belief out there that people say to me, I'm bad at meditating. And I think this comes from like our imagination that meditation is, you know, some monk in another country who has like no thoughts at all. And is just able to like exist in nothingness. And we bring like a more gentle definition that all we are working on. And it is a it is a practice we're working, not necessarily achieving things here is on being present to the moment and on cultivating non-judgment. Then instead we move mindfulness to a spectrum from I'm going through my entire day on autopilot and I haven't had like any engagement into what's actually happening to on the other end of the spectrum, that monk who is meditating on the mountain. And we can see that in our daily lives, we can take steps towards being more mindful. There's a lot of space in between those two extremes. And so um, in my practice, we use a lot of breath work. We practice breath work when we're feeling calm so that we have access to it. Those neural pathways, when we're feeling anxious, most obnoxious thing when you're having a panic attack is someone saying, just breathe. But it is the way that you can control your nervous system with such ease, which you'll know through your polyvagal work is that this breath, it's just this amazing tool. You always have it with you. Like if you don't have your purse and you don't have your GABA or you don't have your prescription for your you know, medication to manage your anxiety attack, like what are you going to do? Your breath is something that no, that you will always have with you. And so I would also add that. Remember when I said that when you're activated, your system doesn't know your rational mind kind of exists. The breath, right. Is actually the way to tell your system what is happening without like the rational mind. For sure. Yeah. And so it's just so incredible. And it's really hard to, if you're only practicing breathing, when you're anxious, it's really hard when you're anxious to build those new neural pathways. You know, like you were saying, you're just not aware of like the conscious parts of your brain. You're not building new memories in that state very well. And so working on breath work, practicing meditation, um, when you are in a calmer state, um, as almost like the practice, like this is what calm feels like it's practice for your nervous system, but it's also practice in that technique so that when you are in a situation where you're like, ah, scary bear, scary email, you can center on your breath and regain that sense of calm with a lot more ease than if you have not cultivated being able to access that. Then we have movement. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things about movement is a, is a quote by my mom. And she, she's like my mom movement uh, inspiration because she always made time to like go for runs with her friends, even when we were really little. 
And she said, it takes whatever I'm feeling and turns it into joy. And I love that about vigorous activity, like running, um, yoga, hit classes, like Zumba. These are things that just like pull us and, and take our feelings and help process, um, you know, especially anger, frustration, sometimes even sadness and like really transform them through movement. We can literally work through our feelings. And so having movement like that, that is energizing, that lifts us up. I call those power pushes when you, you know, find time in your week to move that. And everyone starts at a different place. So someone who's not active at all really don't need a lot. Even, you know, a brisk walk can be a power push get the heart rate up and improve that. And the benefits for that, you know, yes, emotional processing, but then also on brain health, you know, you're increasing blood flow to your brain and you're actually priming your brain to learn new things. So it's very important when you're doing work around, okay, I've decided that I want to build new neural pathways. I'm going to build calm neural pathways instead of anxious neural pathways. I'm going to help myself have new habits. So I'm have new thought patterns. Well, when you exercise your body and brain produces more brain derived neurotrophic hormone, which is really priming your brain to like build these new pathways. And so, yes, it's good on an emotional level, but the physiology of it for transforming your anxiety into something else is really cool. I like to think of it as when we move into sympathetic tone, right? So more of that anxiety, that activation, that like prepare to defend. Um, I also think of it as like life force energy, right? We need this life force energy to be present for us to deal with whatever the circumstance is. But if it's an email and we're not actually able to discharge that life force, right? It keeps our, phys- like it, it almost locks us, like locks our physiology in because all this life force has been mobilized and has literally nowhere to go. Raising your heart rate, doing something that requires a movement allows you to discharge that life energy, which then tells your nervous system, hey, like we're actually good, right? Like the threat's sort of not here right now. Like We've dispelled and like now as our heart rate comes back down, we move more into that state of calm because we've discharged this energy that isn't needed anymore because the situation is not calling for that level of life force. Yeah, I love, I love that analogy. I'm hearing that a lot right now. Um, I think it's from that book that a lot of people are reading burnout on like finishing the stress cycle. And yeah, like there is life force, there's energy, there is a reaction. And where's that going to go? You know, only so much can be released by yelling on Twitter. Like it's just not, it doesn't move at all. The other thing that can help with movement is to choose um, rather than these like power pushes is to put peaceful pauses into your day where you're doing more into your week. We're doing more mindful movement where rather than working to get your heart rate up, you're doing a yin yoga class. You're going for a walk in the woods and actually seeing how low your heart rate can go by just experiencing meditative, mindful exercise. And so when we get into building movement, it's not all fitness and how fast can you push yourself? There's a real great balance there in 
for you as an individual, how much pushing do you need and how much recovery exercise do you need? Um, and, you know, based on things like what kind of anxiety you have to go back to that, you know, decision, um, defensive and fatigue model, you might need different types of exercise. Someone in the fatigue model needs very little, if any, of those power pushes to start. They really need to rebuild their physical fitness through gentle movement. Um, whereas someone who is more on that uh, defensive anxiety, they have a ton of extra, of extra yang, of extra energy um, in general. And getting that out through movement is a beautiful way to move that energy in a safe and healthy way. And then we have the last pillar of connection which we've already sort of touched upon, but I'm curious if you have any additional things to add in or say about the connection piece. Yeah, I feel like I could talk about connection all day. So I will try and not do that. It is really, I think the spiritual part of anxiety comes in very strongly, not that there are not tons of research around the actual physiological effects of connection because there are, but there is a certain level of anxiety when you are not moving through the world as your most authentic self, that the only solution that I have found for this level of anxiety is uncovering who you are and then finding the courage and safety to present that to the world. When you are living in a way where you feel like you need to hide parts of yourself from the people in your life, incredibly anxiety provoking. There's this fear that someone will see through what you're presenting, that they will not like it. I was thinking you know, I'm talking about this in such like vague terms of like, what kind of example can I, can I give to really like bring this in, but sometimes it's just even accepting little things about yourself. You know, I am, I'm a really caring person. And sometimes like all humans, like you, you just make mistakes. You, you don't pick up, sometimes I don't pick up social cues right? Where you're just like, oh, I should have thought, especially whenever they're all changing in the pandemic. And, you know, you think ahead and you're like, okay, I'm going to ask if someone wants me to put on a mask when we meet, but then you meet and you're so excited to see them and you forget that you were going to ask, oh, would you like me to put on my mask? And then they say, oh, would you mind putting on your mask? And you're like, oh no, I forgot to do this thing that I actually meant to do to make someone uncomfortable. And like someone like me, it's got a tendency to anxiety. I can really go down that like, oh no, I've done something horribly wrong. I haven't done something horribly wrong, right? Like I I haven't, I've just made a mistake. And when you can find that grace and that self-compassion to just be like, oh, as much as I would love to be the type of person that never makes those mistakes, like that's, that's not me. I'm the type of person that's like easily distracted and will forget like, things like that. And so when I, when I can just be that version, that person who like sometimes forgets things that like, I really wish I didn't. And I have that grace with myself. I'm not anxious about it. Right. I'm not judging myself for something that like, I know I did my best on. I'm just not, that's not my natural strength. And so learning those things about yourself, 
And rather than judging them or being really harsh, just like finding that self-compassion of like, yeah, I did my best and maybe my best still hurt someone. And that's really hard, but we're still trying to do better, but we're also finding that self-compassion. So we don't have to sit in shame, guilt, anxiety, like I'm a bad person. And there's a level of self-knowledge and, and community where where you can be yourself. And when you're giving that compassion to other people, they, they give it back to you so you can learn and grow and find that best version. And there's that, again, that humanness, right? That return, like that humanity piece where like, let's all not get on, get too righteous and assume that we don't all make mistakes, right? We all do. And how might we be able to, how might we be able to move through it more compassionately toward each other versus, you know, blame and shame and, and guilt, right? Because then that just brings down the whole thing. Totally, totally. It brings down the whole thing. And it's just, we are all human. Everybody makes mistakes, and, but we're all different. We all make different mistakes. And learning how to be okay with being wrong and experiencing that discomfort of, oh, like I hurt you, even though I didn't mean to, even if it was just something small, like, you know, I missed a social cue. That is huge with moving anxiety when you don't have to, because when you're worried about that, you're trying to hit something that's perfectionism and you're never going to achieve it. So you're always holding yourself to this, like, I should never make mistakes standard. And so, yeah, just learning that and not comparing yourselves to others, but instead comparing yourself to yourself. Um, that's where I think that connection piece and that self-knowledge really starts to move the needle on anxiety in a, in a whole different way. Amazing. So can you, can you share with us a little bit more about like your actual program? Like what is your program? Uh, like we've, sh- we've, you've shared the five pillars, but like, how does it work? And like, if, in case somebody's like, I need support here, you know, what does, you know, what is this program about so that they might know, like, is this the right thing for me? For sure. So the Tranquil Minds program uh, is built from how I worked with my patients one-on-one managing their anxiety through lifestyle medicine. And that is one way that um, folks, if you're in Ontario and are interested in accessing naturopathic care, I take patients one-on-one through the Tranquil Minds program, working with me through naturopathic medicine. But because I can only help so many people, I have also turned the Tranquil Minds program into the Tranquil Minds course which is a DIY self-study version of the Tranquil Minds program. So it contains uh, video modules and a digital workbook. And it's me teaching just like I would my patients through um, moving all of the pillars through a six-week program where each week we just like do a little bit more. You know, like I said, with nutrition, it's just like, okay, this week, just pay attention. Are you missing food windows? And then next week it's like, okay. Let's eat in those food windows. It's very step-by-step. I'm kind of like, I have a lighthearted voice because um, sometimes it seems like it's too small, but it's not. It's, it's that small on purpose because it's designed to help you be successful. Um, when we try and make big changes all at once, 
it's really hard and fall back. Um, and that's not your nervous system into a dysregulation because you're like, right. Cause your system's yeah. not like if it, you, you almost kind of want to go under the radar, like where the nervous system is like, it's humming over here. And you're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sneak in from like around the corner and just like slowly start making changes. And, and it won't notice that all of a sudden, like, you know, over time, the whole garden around it has changed. And it's like, oh, it's kind of nice here versus like, wow, I just changed the entire landscape in one day. And it's like, oh my God, where am I? Yeah. It's really hard to sustain um, when you make changes like that. And it can be really disrupting as well. And so, and hard to change. You know, I see a lot of times people maybe get put on a stress leave from work. They read like a self-help book and they're like, all right, I'm going to completely change my lifestyle. They like start spending an hour meditating. They've got like an hour workout. They've got the whole system in, but it's built around their time off. What happens when they go back to work? So it's not that those things are not helpful and healing and perfect use of time when you're off. It's also worth considering, you know, when you move these pieces in slowly, it's sustainable. And so that's what the course teaches. It's uh, it's set up uh, self-studies. So you can do it at your own pace, but it's designed to be done over six weeks so that each, each uh, day there's like a, a little video, like five minutes of like, this is what you're going to work on today. And so it's all bite-sized chunks um, out through that. Amazing. Now you also mentioned audiobook. So I do want to ask you about it. So like what's going on there? Uh, so, um, in July of 2020, I released create calm, the professional's guide to overcoming anxiety from the inside out, which is my book, which goes into everything that we talked about today, but in a lot more detail in book format. Um, and I am just putting on the final editing details of that, um, as an audiobook. So it's all, it's all recorded. I'm just going through the editing, um, and if anybody listening to this podcast would like um, a copy of that, I'm hoping that the technology will be sorted so that we can we can get that to you when it comes out in November. Wow, very, very soon. So let's me go to the final question. Where can people find you, follow you? Where can they learn about your DIY, work with you one on one and or get your book? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram a lot. So if you want to hang out on Instagram, my handle there is at tranquil mind naturopath. Um, and then a lot of my resources are on my website, um, which is tranquilmindnaturopath.com. Um, and those places have all of the links for, you know, the book and the, um, working with me, all of those places are, are linked there. So if you want to hang out or reach out. That's definitely where you can find me. Um, I'm also going to share with you a link um, that's specific for getting on the waitlist for the audiobook download. I would love to give that to you if that's something that you would like to listen to on your commute or on your run. Um, so there's going to be a link. Um, Madeline, I don't know where yeah, it's in be. the show notes, in the so show notes, basically where you get the episode, there's going to be a description of that episode. So like if you're on Apple. It's there. Uh, all of our podcasts are available on our website, ecophysio.com under either the blog tab or podcast tab. And basically where that 
podcast is where you listen to it underneath is like the description and in there will be all the links and the contact info. Amazing. So it'll be right there. If you would like your own uh, free copy of my audiobook. Amazing. Love that. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this uh, because like I even feel better just knowing this information, you know what I mean? For my own self to be like, oh, I wonder where I'm at today. And like, okay, yeah, let's bring a little bit more mindfulness in. And right. So hopefully others are feeling the same way and will get on your wait list and get your book and, you know, learn this in significantly more uh, details. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And we always want to thank our listeners for joining us on a weekly basis. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of our weekly uh, releases. And of course, share this podcast out because again, anxiety is a universal experience and you don't know who you're going to be helping perhaps find some tidbits to improve their life and deal and manage with the anxiety better. So share the podcast episode out and we'll connect with everybody on the next podcast. Bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain. And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.